Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I hope you're enjoying your month of February. This is the last uh, week of February and Similar to previous weeks, I would like to start with introducing another podcast that I personally love and I listen to. It's called The Addicted Mind. The host is one of my friends and fellow therapists, Dwayne Osterlin. And the focus of this podcast is on psychology of addiction. Dwayne was our guest in episode few episodes ago, and uh, he talked about psychology of sex and addiction. So if you're interested in that topic, I highly encourage you guys to check out uh, my interview with him and also his podcast. I leave a link to the show notes. Today, my guest is John Weber, MS and licensed marriage family therapist. He's a co-host of Talking Therapy podcast, and you might have heard him talk in that podcast, a very popular podcast. He's actually a fellow clinician in the community. And from time to time, we have dinner and lunch. And I always feel fascinated by how he view things and his works with couples. So I thought it would be a wonderful thing to have him on our show to share some of his wisdom and perspective around evolutionary psychology. We're talking about some of the things that he noticed in his work as couple therapist that works, some of the work he's, he's doing with King Community, and oh, talk about modality and theories and 
intervention that he uses and he finds is helpful for his practice. John Weber is a psychotherapist, a lecturer, and a podcaster. He holds a Master of Science in Counseling Psychology and a licensed marriage family therapist working in private practice in Manhattan Beach, California. In addition to working with adults, adolescents, and family, John worked with couples and has had training in emotionally focused couples therapy and is a member of the prestigious Institute of Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy. John is also an Emmy-nominated producer of a documentary about pediatric physical therapy. Along with his co-host, R.J. Thomas, John produces the Talking Therapy podcast, a very popular series, which has just had under 100,000 listeners and is enjoyed by therapists on every continent. Without further ado, here's my conversation with John Weber. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have my friend, fellow podcaster and therapist, John Weber on the show today. John, welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much. Very happy to be here with you. I'm so excited that you're here today. So for our listeners, a few days ago, we had this conversation over lunch about how we were talking about couple therapy and John was sharing with me that how he sees things through the evolution of uh, psychology perspective and how he kind of looked at the like relationship through the lens of like evolutionary psychology and how it relates to mating, bonding, and relationships. So John, tell us a little bit about how do you kind of make sense of that process? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty broad. So first, let me say that I know it's potentially somewhat politically incorrect these days to think about evolutionary psychology. But I think it's important just for me, simply because I like it. I like to think about the, uh, you know, our ancestral roots, sexually mating, where we came from, how we got here. And I like to, to study it, read it. I'm by no means an expert. I didn't do any dissertation on it. I just like to study it. It somehow can make its way into the counseling room, certainly by psychoeducation, very little. But uh, just so you have a way of understanding where we came from as human beings and what we're faced with now in what I think is a quantum leap of uh, mate selection, marriage, relationships, and all the various ways in which relationships are defined now in the beginning of the 21st century. We tend to flatter ourselves that we're masters of our own destinies and that we make important life decisions always through clear thinking and reason. But we cannot deny that nature plays a role, correct? Absolutely. I can see that. Yeah. So in that sense, I began to be interested in uh, evolutionary psychology and just very interesting facts about it. And, and I also think about how that affects our modern world, the way, we, the way we pick mates, the way we're almost programmed through the media, through fashion and music and art and literature. Uh, we're told what we ought to like. And the truth is, then we're going to be in conflict with what we tend to, in, in an innate sense, like. Right. So you're, from what I'm hearing, it sounds that you see how our, our ner- nature plays a role in all the like mating and relationships. So it's not solely nurture and our kind of drive as a human being. 
to be different. So how do you see that in the couples? How would that play out? Well, for example, one thing I'm noticing with would-be couples, for example, we, we've gone through many changes. Women have, uh, in fact, by today's standards, women get college degrees at a much higher rate than men. So if we look at our people just younger than us, uh, it'll roughly 60% of the college degrees are being earned by women, which is fantastic. I think that's wonderful, and, uh, and we need more. But what's happening is we're also in the middle of this, this correction in how women have been welcomed into everything from education to the boardroom, whatever. We're finding that a lot of the young men are falling by the wayside. And I'm very curious as to why this is happening. Why, you certainly, logic would dictate there's room for everybody. So what are we doing where we're losing some of the young men? And so young women will come into my office, and I'm saying everywhere from, say, 18 up through the late 20s, uh, where people are launching out and taking part in, in a prospect of love and belonging, trying to find a new tribe, a new connection, finding love and connection with people on all levels. They're really struggling to find men uh, and, and even though they're powerful women and successful women, they still have this desire to meet and have romance and b- potentially build families. And they're having a hard time. And then when I sit with many of the young men, particularly much younger, high school, college, a lot of them give a variant of the following thought that they don't really want to be married. They don't see the need to be in a committed relationship. And the younger ones will mention, you know, I, I have. I have porn and DoorDash and I have gaming and I don't need anything else. So I'm very curious how we got there. And I think it's important that we look at ways to improve the way men and women can meet and develop meaning in their relationships. It's sort of essential, right? We, we need more people to keep going. Right, right. And when you talk about that, I was thinking about monogamy versus non-monogamous relationship that mm-hmm. uh, in nature we have like an, an animal kingdom that monogamy not necessarily is not the only way and how as human beings we're kind of socialized to be monogamous so what do you think about that i think uh yeah there's a lot of things to think about it and, and again you could so you could look at evolutionary psychology and potentially find some answers one you would think about the fact that if you went back you know, depending on your view, let's just say thousands of years ago, but, you know, 10,000 years ago, maybe longer, human beings traveled in groups of roughly, you know, anthropologists think roughly 30 to 35 people. Right. Uh, and you would, you would be nomadic and you would be related to half of these people anyway. And so your, your chances of having a mate would be fairly slim unless there was a, you know, I don't know what the ratio men to women were. But uh, you would be looking for a mate within that group. And I guess at some point, people uh, met up with other groups, which is probably, you know, the, the, the invention of xenophobia. You know, here's someone that looks different than us. They have more men than women. We have more women than men. And, you know, what's, how is this going to play out? So I, I think that's one of the things I look at is, is how we began selection. So we know that women have an incredible sense of scent being able to use their, their olfactory senses for scent. And this is believed to be, uh, even now, when women say they love the smell of their man, and they, they're not talking about uh, the newest cologne, you know. Uh, they're not talking about an aftershave. They're talking about the scent of a man. 
And so in evolutionary psychology or in anthropology, we know that women have and have had this ability to smell a potential mate and to understand through their sense of scent his immunity, his ability to be immune to diseases. And so she would find him more interesting. And if she has a strong immune system, he he certainly has ways of selecting. So we were assured to have the next generation be much stronger. So I think that's, I don't know, I kind of went the long way around the block on that one, but I think that's interesting. And then all the other ways that uh, scientists have been able to prove that we select mates on physical attraction, you know, body proportions and facial features and, and on a number of other things. Right. And how attraction might be different depending on like, you know, some people get attracted to something opposite or complementary to their, like an unconscious level to their characteristics, because as a human being, we always want to improve on our gene on some kind of I, I think that would make sense. Yeah, I think that that'd be the best way to describe an interest in anything that's a variant would be, uh, for me, it makes sense. If it's just naturally done, there must be something. So I think we should always understand that no matter where we're at or what we're doing, whether we're on some savanna in Africa or we're on a space station circling around some black hole somewhere, we're going to probably have some of this going on in our brains. Maybe it's in our old brain. You know, I think of human beings, it's like we, we are hardware and software. We're these bodies, but we're also the way our minds work, you know? And as our frontal cortex has expanded and grown, uh, it's almost like we get programming updates. But we're still being driven partly by that primitive drive. Yeah, and it's interesting. Then if we're looking like, you know, at the relationship through that lens, then how would you make sense as far as like, what's your experiences when as a clinician, when you see that, like when there's infidelity in a monogamous relationship, do you feel they notice it's more painful for women or men? Or how is your view of that? If you want to take a look at it from evolutionary perspective? Mm. I don't know if I could really connect it. I mean, it'll be, it may come to me, but I would say that in the cases I've seen, I've probably seen more cases in which the man was the one who was the unfaithful partner. And I have found that in that case, the relationship is far more likely to be saved uh, based on the woman uh, wanting to forgive him. And the fact that for men, they really, if you ask them, they really say, you know, they say, I love my wife. I don't know why I did this. You know, I really love and desire her. And I don't want to have a long-term relationship with this woman. So, from, from just current psychology, we know there may be issues going on with his own parenting. Some studies have even shown, funny enough, that there's a correlation between bad relationships between sons and fathers that can relate to those sons going on and, and having a, being a part of an infidelity in their marriage, uh, which I thought was interesting. And I don't have the specifics in front of me right now, but I thought that was interesting. Now, when, when the studies have also shown that when women are unfaithful, quite often the marriage won't be saved. Because the belief is women first connect on an emotional level rather than physical level, at least from an evolutionary point of view. And, right. uh, <laughs> and I, I, I kind of to, like jump into in the middle of sentence, but you know, no, but, I want you to jump in <laughs> because I think about that often, and I know many of my listeners. They know I talk about I'm Iranian, and I certainly see that pattern. But part of me, I wonder how much of it is lack of resources from women. That okay. You know, women, they don't, at times they don't have resources, especially older generations. So when there is an infidelity, 
it's just like there's extra motivation to make it work versus guys kind of like they can easily pack and go. But again, definitely can see the uh, evolutionary mm-hmm. psychology play into that. And it, there's nothing like black and white and they're always number of things, complex. You're complex absolutely right. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah, you're, no, you're right. I think that, that when, you, when you think about a great number of studies have been done showing that from an evolutionary point of view, women, females, would be likely to choose a man who has strong masculine features, you know, a strong jawline, you know, a broader brow, uh, you know, muscles, you know, uh, higher chest and, and shoulder ratio to waist. So it, which would also prove that there's likely a strong, you know, the idea is testosterone can make us susceptible to diseases. So a man who could have a large amount of testosterone and develop into this, you know, this V-shaped body would have to have enough stamina to withstand diseases because he's more susceptible with this larger number of larger amount of testosterone, right? Right. So that is, that is one thing. And then women would often, um, again, from an evolutionary psychology point of view, an anthropological view, women would be more likely to mate with men they find attractive and healthy, but often they might select a partner to marry or live with who has more resources. And so, you know, nature is sort of odd that way. Often these strong masculine types aren't necessarily as, well, and I'm not saying they're always the case, but certainly nature hands out something to the guys who may not be quite so V-shaped. And often they have a great level of intelligence or an ability to uh, manage resources or, you know, thrive and build commerce. And so they have more resources. So there was a study done. I can't remember the percentage, but it was pretty high, saying throughout history, a great percentage of men were raising children that were not theirs biologically, but they believed they were. That is and so I think interesting. That's, yeah, right. And I don't know what it was. It was an incredibly high number for me. I might have been as many as 10% throughout history, but that still seems like a large number. But it was large enough to take notice. I remember thinking, wow. So really, that's the whole idea of mate selection, mate guarding jealousy, chastity was all based on, and, and even women who looked virginal. The idea was this assurity that I'm putting my resources into raising my own, you know, my own genetics, my own biology, my own child. And so uh, that is probably where the, the basis of jealousy comes from. Right? <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about some issues that you can see come up in relationship therapy, sex therapy, it can be a challenge for a clinician. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sexually, you know, what one of the things I've seen is with older couples, uh, and I'm particularly thinking of many years ago, that just the female partner was older. She was a good 15 and close to 20 years older than her partner. And uh, I remember that she was trying so hard to fight telling him how much pain she was in during intercourse. And uh, she felt there was something terribly wrong with her. And she didn't want to say anything for fear of losing this younger, fairly attractive guy. And uh, he was he was going at it like he was, you know, with a 20 year old and was not being very, um, you know, aware of her experience. And uh, they'd come into therapy for other things. But that came up and uh, she was actually both of them were actually shocked to learn that it would not be unusual at her age to to feel some pain or some extra dryness in the vaginal area and that, um, that it, it's something that with time and effort 
could be a little better if they were more patient and, and maybe used a lubricant or were more aware of her physiology at that age, you see. And it's, you brought up an excellent point. You talked about how they were coming to therapy for other issues. And I see it all the time that people are coming in, going into couple therapists or individual therapists to address an issue. And at, at the root of the issue or, or one of the main presenting problem is the sexual challenges and sexual disorders or lack of compatibility or like physical, physiological things related to sex. But many therapists, they just don't talk about sexuality. Why do you think is that an issue? Because I, I think you're one of the few therapists that you assess all of these challenges. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think we as therapists, and, and I, when I say that, I mean clinical psychologists, marriage family therapists, licensed clinical social workers, licensed professional counselors. As a whole, when I talk to people, to my peers, many of them have suggested Either they're a little uncomfortable because they don't think they've had enough training in grad school, or they, they don't go too deep into it. They'll talk a little bit about it, talk around it. And I have found that if I'm willing to just sit in that experiential moment with them and ask them about all different levels of intimacy, including physical, but also emotional and financial uh, intelligence intimacy, and and we and then I'll finally come back to okay physical what's going on and they always seem pleased that I'm discussing it and then things will come up like well we haven't had sex in a long time or uh, uh, he can get an erection but he can't ejaculate you know or or he's tried Viagra and that's not working so I think for the clinicians out there first understand that we want to make sure that they have had they've talked to their doctor that they've talked to a urologist in the case of a man, you know, that, that they've gone in to make sure there's no medical condition affecting what's going on. And that's our first standard of practice is to make sure they've uh, eliminated that as a possibility. And then the, the physician will know, hey, maybe you want to go into some marital counseling and discuss this because often there could be side effects from uh, depression, uh, depression medication, psychotropics. There could be aspects of anxiety for whatever reason that affect performance. There could be uh, substance abuse. There could be infidelity. Uh, there, you know, a number of things, right? Absolutely. And I think at times, at least based, that's based on my experience as, as I work with sex therapists to see that sometimes the challenge comes from clinicians not being comfortable talking about sexuality because like oftentimes maybe that's the area that we're working in LA that when I check in with people, they're usually open and they kind of like times they your relief. Someone is asking about that, but at times very so, relieved. Yeah, I see clinicians that kind of like hesitant. They don't want to talk about it. And the other thing is about working with people with alternative lifestyle, different kind of like different kind of sexual uh, relationships, and some clinicians are not comfortable about those kind of things and they just don't know what <laughs> right. to do with their discomforts. I think that's part of it. Very much so. And I found that um, quite, quite by accident and, and actually uh, I'm very pleased as a clinician that I have found uh, couples from different types of sexual populations and practices have made their way to me. And, and I think that it started many years ago, several years ago when I was working with uh, a client who was involved in uh, BDSM and you know, bondage dominant sadomasochism? For those who don't know, I'm sure most people know. And in the session, the client sh 
shared aspects of their life that centered around the relationship. And they were pleased that I didn't spend a whole lot of time trying to pathologize them, uh, but rather tried to find connections between experiences that this person had had with their own caregivers in terms of mirroring and modeling and caregiving, nothing, nothing untowards, uh, and how it played into uh, how they sought partners in later life, the types of partners, the types of sex activity that they felt comfortable in. In that time, I learned little things that I didn't know, you know, and, and, and learned a little bit about BDSM. And people must have just spoken because then, you know, I'd get a few more. And uh, early on, I, I had a family that, that there was a polyamorous relationship going on. So it was uh, one individual with two other partners. It, and so that was sort of new for me. And, and I think still is. I'm still sort of getting used to that. Uh, and then also I had a chance to work on a study in grad school uh, with what's called the lifestyle. And for those who don't know, that would be, you know, swapping of partners. And so, um, you know, even recently I had someone call and uh, they were very careful saying, I'm just looking for someone very open-minded who won't judge me and won't try to uh, tell me that I'm, I'm living this wrong life. I just really want to work on my relationship. And when they shared that they were in uh, this, this lifestyle, uh, I was able to say, yes, I'm familiar to a point, And I was able to uh, identify this person, uh, how they would be identified in the lifestyle. And they were surprised that I knew and uh, booked a session with their partner and came in and were able to process the relationship. See, that's what we as clinicians should be looking to do is giving everyone a place to talk about human relationships. That's the primary driver in our lives is our relationships. And you can decide whether you want to pathologize someone's view of sexuality, but I, for me, there's no place for it. I, I can't be helpful if I'm sitting in judgment of people's uh, ways of, of professing their love or their sexuality. And to really get to the relationship, you have to sit with the people, hear their stories, and be non-judgmental. I agree with you, and I love when you're talking about focusing on the relationship, because at times what I notice with some clinicians is that because there is a value discrepancy between them and the client, they just pathologize the situation or the relationship, and they just go on to mm-hmm. correcting the behavior when there's not necessarily any challenges, and that's the lifestyles working for them, and that can be very frustrating so what do you think, and I think as a client, it's just very scary when that's part of your life. How can you find a therapist that are at least open-minded or uh, familiar or at least non-judgmental toward this behavior? What are mm-hmm. some of the tips that you have for our listeners? Well, I'll tell you, I think it, it would be word of mouth. And, and I think what this one individual did was very wise. They just made it clear that they're not looking to have their whole past examined, that unless it's connected to their relationship and um, asked some very honest questions and stood by their guns, uh, pardon the expression. And I think that that's useful to have some compassion for yourself. And what you should have in a good therapist is one who first has empathy for you as a fellow human being. I believe strongly in the concept of unconditional positive regard. And I think that for me, I must enter the subjective experience of my clients. It's not important that they understand my experience. 
I, if I understand where they're coming from, then I can answer the questions. Why are they doing what they're doing? Why are these symptoms coming up? What are they communicating? And, there, and I don't know any other way to help people without caring about them and uh, taking an interest in the narrative they're telling rather than the one I want to tell. So if, you, if you're a clinician and you tend to pathologize people, including people with personality or so-called personality disorders or so-called schizophrenia, what have you, I think you need to get yourself into either your own counseling or some peer work and really take an account of what you're bringing into the relationship as a, as a therapist, as a counselor. You'll better serve your clients if you, if you just have empathy. Exactly. And I think at times it's important to, as clinicians, we develop this kind of a self-awareness. I know when I was doing the sex therapy training, one of the training requirements was that to go into this sexual assessment training that you get exposed to a number of different mm-hmm. uh, pornography and see, and we were processing with the other therapists and supervisor our reaction to different genre of porn. And not necessarily any, everyone can work with every kind of population, but I think it's important Correct. to be aware of our own biases and just kind of see if you can pass through people's differences and work with the relationship as you were talking about. Yes. The same thing I would tell my, my patients, my clients, I would tell my peers, always make room for the unrevealed. Don't decide everything, including your own views on things. And when your own views are coming in, really begin to understand, is this coming from the client or is this my stuff? And when it is, Find a way, you know, you have to stay in the role as the therapist, but try to get more in tune with their subjective experience and then seek some peer review or counseling, do some reading, do some, do some soul searching. And if you really can't be helpful or you think it's impossible, and I've seen, I've seen clinicians just feel it's impossible, then, you know, you need to refer them on and because they deserve the help they're looking for. They deserve the, the relationship in therapy they're looking for. And it's okay. You have to have compassion for yourself too, if you have to step away. Right. And I know you're excellent with working with couples. So what are some of the theories that you find useful in your work with couples in the room? Mm, that's a great question because uh, it's evolved a bit. Obviously, I, I will never lose my interest in John Gottman's work. I think there's a great deal of value there. But it wasn't enough for me, and I then sort of fell into imago therapy, which I like very many things about it. I don't know much about that. What is that? Well, that's that's Harville Hendricks and uh, his his wife, Helen LaKelly Hunt, I believe it it is. She has a PhD as well, so we don't want to forget her. And, you know, the imago dialogue, and it's really rooted in attachment, obviously, psychodynamic and attachment. And then when I worked with families, I was using Salvador Mnuchin's uh, structural family therapy. Uh, So then when I felt, when I ran across emotionally focused couples therapy, and I'd met Sue Johnson, in fact, she was a guest on my podcast, uh, and she invited my co-host RJ Thomas and I to attend an externship with her, I really began to see that a strong basis for me is that relationships are our primary drive, that if we have insecure attachment or some some obstacle blocking the attachment channel. That's the key with the couple is getting them to own their own stuff and share it with their partner. Sue Johnson talks about this as being a couple's dance. And it very much is like a dance floor. Uh, We have primary reactions to things that come up in our relationships. 
And those are so painful that we create secondary reactions. And it might be uh, we feel unloved and, and not valuable, but it may come back as anger and conflict towards our partner. Or we may feel useless and not valuable. And so we may develop a high level of anxiety that gets in the middle. So I think that the work of emotionally focused couples therapy has been great. More, more recently, I've also began to look at some other concepts. I, I, I do my best not to shame anybody. I try not to take sides, but I try to invite the clients to be aware that what they're doing creates tension. Coming into the room is great. I think it, there's a lot of bravery and curiosity to people who come into counseling. It's not the sign of the end of a relationship. It's actually potentially a rejuvenation. And so when something comes up, I will say to them, hey, I wonder if you, you know what you just did there. Do, do you know the reaction that you had when you said that about your partner? Or uh, you may ask them if they can describe the pain they're having in a way that doesn't make their partner look bad or feel bad. So they own their own pain. You remind them that they've been talking about hopes and desires, and you wonder if they can share these with the other person rather than just with the therapist to look at their partner and knowing that it might not immediately work out for them. But the importance is they're there working on it together, and there's a lot of power in that understanding, and it helps what what we all would know as healthy differentiation. When you can say, I don't quite agree with you, but I'm here in the tension learning from you and sharing with you, see? And that's healthy differentiation. So when you're talking about that, I'm kind of thinking about several clients that usually like I see. When I see client couples, it's mostly around sexual challenges. And I know mm-hmm. when there is sexual infidelity and like all kind of infertility, there's this rupture in the relationship. Mm. And I bet you've yes. seen number of like similar cases that there was like a third person involved and there was just some infidelity and sense of betrayal. Do you, how often do you see people can work through that and kind of like reconnect and repair the attachment that they had? Oh, I, you know, numbers wise, it would be hard to say. I would say I'm always hopeful to get to that place with a couple. But again, I cannot nor should I put my own views of whether they should stay together or not too much on the table. That's my counter-transference. That's tying into my own losses and gains in relationships. So I really try to stay with them and be curious what's going on. I try to point out lethal statements that come up because lethal statements will create regression in the, in the session. You know, whether it's hidden or obvious, sometimes it's hidden statements that aren't really that, you know, not really conscious that they're doing it. And sometimes it's very conscious. It's very obvious what they're saying. And so I try to attend to that, that, you know, that's pretty lethal. It sounds like you're in pain, you know, because revenge doesn't take any skills, right? Absolutely. It's just, it's just being nasty and you're expecting nothing back, <laughs> you right, know? And right. so that, that may be an indicator to how they've worked together. I think it's going back to John Gottman, you know, the four horsemen, the only one that really, that I, if I remember correctly, the only one the Gottman stated in their love lab that was dangerous is contempt. Mm-hmm. You know, that point when you roll your eyes and you just you're done you can come back from the others right criticism defensiveness and stonewalling right but the contempt was the one the Gottmans posited that was the death knell for the relationship and I think when we the other thing is you know if you're sitting this came up recently you know a client's telling me you know my guy is sitting around eating a bucket of chicken and smoking pot nonstop, 
and he won't shower till the end of the day. And then he wants to go out and drink. And she says, I'm finding him extremely unattractive. Right. Mm, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and he, and he's, he's like, I don't get it. I'm just, you know, I work hard and I'm doing this. And, and she says, well, this is not what we were, you know, and, and, you know, and so we evolved, right. So we, we used to die sadly. And I do my own family history. So many women died early in childbirth. I mean, really young. We died through wars. We died through a lot horrific wars. We died through poverty and, and starvation and disease. And in our modern world, we're not really dying as much from those things as we used to, and we're living longer. And so one would wonder how many people really can stay married for 65 years, right? Right. That's so true. You might have two or three relationships. But, you know, the point is, and Sue Johnson said this best, really. She tells a story. Uh, it's an old Celtic story of a couple trapped at the end of a tunnel and a dragon is coming down for them with breathing fire and gnashing its teeth. And they know it's getting closer and closer and closer. And they know eventually the dragon will reach them and they'll be consumed or burned. And in the darkness, they reach out for each other's hands and they find each other. And even though they know that it's the end, they know they're together and they have a certain level of comfort by the secure attachment. What Sounds a beautiful, brutal. yeah. What a beautiful right? analogy, yeah. It's a beautiful analogy because that's really what life is. Now, if you're alone and you've never had secure attachment and you're reaching out for that partner and you're looking, and as Sue says, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I'm reaching in the dark for you and I can't feel you. Then our level of tension and anxiety and remorse and, and maybe a life that wasn't lived fully comes up. And I think that secure attachments in the relationships are not just sexual. It's, that's an ebb and flow. It's a much deeper and longer lasting value in life to share it with another human being, whether you're planting a cactus or making tea or enjoying your grandchildren. Uh, there's far more to, to mating, to being a couple than just the sex. Of course, sex is extremely important. But I think that, you know, and many have said it before, the most powerful and greatest sexual organ is our brain, right? Our brain is the housing of all romance, Okay. Right, right. I love that. And I think just that is so true that I think there always attachment when people's attachment get deeper at time, the initial sparks kind of dies down as the connection gets deeper. But I think it's just like, it's a matter of like tuning in to this new level of intimacy. And I right. think that's really important. Nature is, nature is getting this feeling going because nature's goal is to propagate itself. The, nature's goal is is the fact that biologically we serve one purpose, really. I mean, we, we procreate and then we raise our young and protect them. There's so much more to us, but nature is just interested in that. And, uh, and we do that. And, uh, you know, when you look at couples, uh, and again, it probably is a Gottman type thing, but you can look at couples and you can see the passion and you know that will wear off. And then usually there's another stage where there's the first big fight where people don't talk for weeks or days, right? And then they get back together. That's the classic boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl backstory or girl uh, gets boy back, however you want to look at it. And then, you know, they kind of go along. And, but usually by that time, at least most people in history had gotten married during the passion. And so when the passion goes away, they think the marriage is over and then they have the big fight and then, you know, they just sort of are distant forever. But those people who can come back together and make up and realize that, hey, you know, you're silly about that, but I still love you. Or I think you're completely mad about how you look at this, but I still love the way you do whatever, 
you know, I like the look of your hands when you're doing something. I like the way you always have a pocket full of peanuts or something. Uh, whatever we admire about each other, I think it's when we get to that point that we love our partner unconditionally. That's when true marriage starts. It's not when a certain religion says or whether a state stamps your, your marriage certificate. The true marriage starts when you can accept them fully and allow the ebb and flow of sexuality uh, and know that it will always come back if you just, you know, plant the seeds and water and have good soil and both of you are tending the relationship. That will keep coming back. So, John, I, as, as we sometimes say, I can talk to you about this for hours, but I noticed we are toward the end of our time. And I want to make sure our listeners know how to get a hold of you. So what would be the best way for our listeners to reach you? I think the best way, if someone wants to send an email, my email is therapyworks at gmail.com. So therapyworks is all one word, but it works has an I in it instead of an O. So therapy works with an I at gmail.com. That's probably the easiest. Our podcast, uh, RJ Thomas, a fantastic clinician and good friend of mine, really great guy. Uh, he's my co-host and co-producer. Uh, that is the Talking Therapy Podcast. It's available in iTunes. It's available on Stitcher.com or iPhones or Android. I think it's uh, TalkingTherapyPodcast.com. I think you can usually find us there. We have a homepage, uh, which is too long to tell you. And we're on Facebook, too. So if you look up Talking Therapy Podcast on Facebook, there's a blog. So any of those ways would work. Excellent. And I'll make sure I leave a link to all of those emails and the different uh, links that you mentioned in the show notes so our listeners would be able to just click there and find you. And thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful. Oh, you know what? It really was. And thank you for going into the weeds with me. I tend to go off topic a lot, and but I, I appreciate people that can tolerate that. Sometimes good things happen. No, I love that. It's like the content was great. Thank you. You're very welcome. Kind of you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John. It's always interesting for me when I hear about assumptions that people have about couple therapy, even psychotherapy, and especially sex therapy. Because as you guys know, my, one of my specialties is sex therapy. And there's just so many misconceptions about the issues that people kind of address in sex therapy sessions. If you're curious, if you have any questions about what is sex therapy, uh, feel free to send me an email. And also, if you want to book an appointment with me, you can just go to the show notes and book directly there. I have two offices in LA and also we can work online. All right, I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexology.com sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.